Hi, I'm Jen White, and this is Reset's Friday News Roundup. This morning, we'd normally be reporting the results from last night's Iowa caucuses, but due to big glitches, they are still not available. So Illinois Governor J.B. Pritzker has a pitch. Forget Iowa, make Illinois the first presidential primary in the nation. This state is a diverse state in so many ways, in ways that Iowa and New Hampshire are not. Luis Arroyo leaves the Dirksen Federal Court building with no comment after he pleaded not guilty to a bribery charge. Also named in the lawsuit, former state Senator Martin Sandoval, who pleaded guilty to accepting bribes from the red light camera company. With me to discuss those stories and more, we've got Chicago Sun-Times columnist and ABC7 political analyst Laura Washington and Shia Kapos, reporter and author of the Politico Illinois Playbook newsletter. Welcome to you both. Happy Happy Friday. Okay, so let's start with a story that dominated the news cycle this week, the Iowa caucus. Former South Bend Mayor Pete Buttigieg is holding a very narrow lead over Senator Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren so far, according to the count, is third. But the results were plagued with technical difficulties and delays. Laura, as you were watching this roll out over the course of Tuesday into Wednesday and Thursday, what were you thinking about about this kick out for the Democratic nominating process? I was thinking that every election cycle, you always have something crazy that happens that you could never anticipate. Iowa was supposed to be the gold standard election. I went to bed the night, Monday night, expecting, you know, really like really angry because why, why didn't we have these results yet? And, you know, we, like you said, we had two more days to go. I think it's the biggest issue, I think, is the warning sign it sends about technology mm-hmm. and the, and the, re, the over-reliance. Even now in this day, after 2016, after all the other things we've, problems we've had with social media, with the, you know, the Russian investigation, et cetera, the party in Iowa was willing to rely on an app that they had only been t- testing for two months. That t- tells you how little we've learned about technology and, and its intersection with politics. Shia, your thoughts? And, well, there also is this, we need this instant gratification. So we have this technology, so damn it, we want it now. <laughs> so, you know, I think we have to, you know, go with the flow. There are going to be mistakes. But it is day five now, day mm-hmm. four. I mean, it's crazy. I had planned all my interviews uh, for 10 o'clock at night. Okay, everybody, I'm going to be calling you at 10 o'clock at night, Monday nights, for Tuesday's playbook. And um, 10 o'clock at night comes around. I'm like, you know what? I'm going to bed. I see J.B. Pritzker at that point had been tweeting about how Illinois should be first. And I decided that would be my angle looking forward. Um, So I interviewed um, his chief of staff about that. We talked at length about it. And then I figured I'd weave in numbers about what the results were. Well, no numbers. (laughs) So the lead story Tuesday was J.B. was, you know, made this prescient. Is that the right word? point that Illinois should be doing this. Maybe we could do it better. Well, and his tweet was, to quote him, it's time for the most representative state in the country to be the first in the nation. And I think there, Laura, what he's talking about is, you know, beyond the technology, this question about whether Iowa is the place to start this process, because in terms of demographics, it doesn't reflect the country. Illinois is actually a much closer reflection to, to demographics. And does he make a good point there? He makes a good point in that sense. And, and there's already been questions uh, for years about Iowa because of that. the demographics don't work in terms of people of color. They don't work in terms of age. They don't work in terms of the balance of urban versus rural. But is Illinois the place to, to I mean, there are, there are, and I'm, I love my state, but 
is it, would it be the the right state to replace Iowa, given all the other challenges we have on our plate right now, given that we're still seen as the most corrupt state in the nation, uh, given that, you know, I understand the, the political motivation behind Prisker's call, but I think we've got bigger fish to fry. So it was, an, it was a nice pop for Prisker. I don't think it's going to happen. I don't know. The Republican Party, Tim Schneider agrees. He thinks it's a good idea. So I mean, well, of, course the, the, you know, <laughs> of course he does. Of course he does. But is there political will or some real push behind this uh, shit? Well, I think J.B. Pritzker is a very powerful person in the National Democratic Party, even though he doesn't hold a position. Uh, he has all those dollar signs behind his name. So uh, when it comes time to talk about this behind closed doors with the DCCC, I wouldn't be surprised if it comes up. Maybe it's time for a change. Whether it's Illinois, you know, maybe it'll be some other state. But but. Uh, I would guess in four years, Iowa will not have the same power. And even if they do have it, it will not be a caucus, but it will be a primary. Be careful what you ask for. Remember what what the weather's like in <laughs> Illinois in February. Well, sure. Yeah. Uh, that's always that's, been a controversy. You know, was it daily that moved some... Well, and, and also yeah. the size of the state, right? right. I mean, well, the, the, the candidates would have to travel much longer distance to reach out to cons- constituents right. and different parts of the state. So just the logistics of that could be really well, tricky. I, well, and I think that's the argument behind that has, that has worked in, in Iowa and New Hampshire's favor for, over the years is because they're more manageable states, states. They're cheaper states from the media perspective. They're cheaper states to run operations out of. Uh, but, you know, with these kinds of mishaps, this this could really... For the Democratic Party to start out its primary, formal primary season with this debacle, I think it's going, to, it's, it's going to have an impact for months to come. Well, Mayor Lori Lightfoot was in Washington this week for President Donald Trump's State of the Union address. She called the speech divisive and offensive. Here's a little of what she had to say. The fact that this president made no effort really to do anything to bring a country together to talk about issues that are bipartisan and unifying was really quite disappointing, but also just completely in keeping with really what he's done since he walked down those escalators at Trump Tower now almost four years ago or five years ago. And we spoke to the mayor while she was waiting for her flight back to Chicago from D.C. Shia, what did you make of the State of the Union address? Uh, Well, first, I think her comments could apply to Trump's speech, the prayer breakfast yesterday, Mm -hmm. and to his uh, what, press conference, thing. whatever that was, cheerleading thing, that, whatever that was. Um, uh, his State of the Union. His State of the Union was uh, really a pep rally for his campaign. And he was, uh, you know, if he had more cheerleaders in the crowd, it could have been a, it could have been a campaign stop. It, it, it wasn't all completely accurate. He, he you know... He spun it the way Donald Trump spins things, and uh, that's why you saw an angry Nancy Pelosi, um, you know, dramatically rip up the the speech at at the end. Um, I, I don't know if she will come to regret that. I notice now that uh, Trump is using uh, that video and and the explanation of that in fundraising. He's sending out fundraising emails to his people, you know, pointing that out, and that just you know ramps up. Uh, his base. Hmm. 
Lauren it's also Hunter become too? a it's also become a huge meme on, yeah, on social media right, as yeah, well from right. the from the Democratic side. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. I, I think it was a brilliantly executed speech, a very Trumpian. Very uh, Trumpian. <laughs> I think uh, the mayor's criticism is very valid. There was no attempt to reach out, but I think it wasn't about reaching out. It was about drumming up the base. And right. the man is a master showman. He knows how to market. To bring in the Tuskegee Airmen, a young woman who's looking for a charter school opportunity, um, Rush Limbaugh, and then he pretty much staged some very compelling, very, in some cases, heartwarming events to tell his own story. It was, it was all about telling his own story. At the same time, you know, watching the speech and watching the reaction of Democrats and Republicans, and, and let's be real. The State of the Union is always political theater, right? There's of always course. That's the beauty of it, the, right? the party of the president is clapping, the other side is sitting there. But there was something really startling about the fact that this was happening right before an impeachment vote. Right. And I was looking at the House and looking at the chamber and saying, what do they do on Thursday? Well, they do what uh, what she has said that uh, they do. He had uh, he hosted a celebration in the mm-hmm. East Room of the White House, bringing together all of his top Republican allies to you know basically show I've been vindicated. I didn't do anything wrong. And in, in many ways, the, the State of the Union speech, speech was a warm up for that. I wasn't surprised by the mood in the room and Nancy with the speech, tearing up the speech and some of the protests because Washington is, is descended more deeply than ever into a terrible divide. But I guess my question is, like, what is the, how do they move forward from here? I don't don't think there's any plans to move forward in terms of working together. I think think it it just further divides them. Mm -hmm. I think we're, you know, that's the way it's going to be until after 2020 or 2020's election uh, in November and depending on what happens for another four years. Well, President Trump didn't mention Chicago by name and Mayor Lightfoot said she was ready to walk out if he did in a disparaging way. But he did criticize so-called sanctuary cities like Chicago that refused to help federal agents enforce uh, certain immigration laws. Let's listen. In sanctuary cities, local officials order police to release dangerous criminal aliens to prey upon the public instead of handing them over to ICE to be safely removed. Shia, how were his comments received in Chicago? Negatively. Even some moderate to conservative business people who are part of this immigration group that is working to help legal immigrants get into the system, they were offended. Um, And uh, one of them, uh, Mr. Kunkler, part of the Crown administration, Bill Kunkler, he spoke to me right after he was, you know, he was livid that that Trump, he referred to one of his anecdotes was uh, a woman who was uh, murdered in New York, apparently by someone who was an illegal immigrant and undocumented. Mm-hmm. undocumented. Sorry, I shouldn't say that. And, well, he and says he, he says, says illegal me, aliens. I, I didn't mean to fall into that. And it was offensive to people because when you look at the statistics, it is it doesn't happen. It it just doesn't happen. And so uh, uh, it was uh, bothers more people uh, than not in in this city because we are a sanctuary city. Your thoughts? Well, I think it doesn't bother people in more moderate uh, states and cities like moderate to liberal states and cities like Chicago and Illinois, but on some of the some of the border states and some of the areas where people feel, even in California, where people feel more threatened, I think that kind of fear works. You know, frankly, I think that's one of his biggest strategies, most potent strategies, is operating on fear. If you don't reelect me, these are the terrible things that will happen, and that's really aimed at 
more rural areas, more more non-urban folks. Well, when we spoke to Mayor Lightfoot to get her reaction to the State of the Union address, uh, we also talked about a possible endorsement for a presidential candidate in 2020. And here's a clip of her describing what she's looking for. I want to have someone who speaks to the heartland, who recognizes the importance of cities, um, and first and foremost, as somebody that I believe in my heart, um, has the ability to go toe-to-toe with Donald Trump. Now, Crane Chicago Business reported yesterday that Michael Bloomberg may be close to landing the mayor's support. Laura, what do you make of that? That would not surprise me at all. As you know, she has already uh, said she's very disenchanted with some of the candidates who had not, at the time she said, Lord Lightfoot said this, had not reached out to her. And as I understand, still have not sincerely reached out to her, Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders in particular. Uh, she was a support. She, 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 I think she was looking at Kamala Harris before Kamala Harris dropped out. Bloomberg has been an ally and supporter of hers going back to the time even before she was first elected. Uh, he's been a big supporter of big city mayor. She's a big city mayor herself. Mm-hmm. They they align on a lot of the kinds of issues that she cares most deeply about, like gun control and immigration. So it, it's it's I think it's a win win for her. She you know Plus, she she endorses him. And he doesn't doesn't make it, but that still allows her the opportunity to to, to come come with someone else down the road. Mm-hmm. Plus, he has some interesting uh, backing here in Chicago. John Rogers Jr., who is you know, a leader in the African-American community, at least the business community, and who is a big civic leader here who I think um, African-Americans respect his decision. He's a friend of Obama. And the fact that he is such a big cheerleader, even traveling around the country for uh, Bloomberg, uh, I think hits home with a lot of people. So, Well, how, how much of this is about taking the temperature of Chicago voters, because I'm remembering Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders both came out in support of the Chicago Teachers Union strike. Mm -hmm. Um, People who were participating in the strike were very excited that they were there and and, uh, speaking on behalf of teachers. Is that part of the calculation when somebody's thinking about who to endorse? It's like, okay, I want to make sure that my endorsement actually resonates with the people whose votes I'm going to be seeking down the line. Well, certainly she's not would not be enamored of of those decisions that they made. And in case of Elizabeth Warren, she was came here and actively campaigned with the teachers union during the strike. So I think maybe that might be also part of her calculation. I think uh, Chicagoans, you know, this is a very blue city. There's a lot of eagerness and 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 excitement about getting Trump out of office. And I feel as though whoever ends up being the nominee is going to be supported widely. How much weight does a a city's mayor, uh, the endorsement of of somebody like Mayor Lori Lightfoot, how much weight does that carry? Would it have a big impact on Michael Bloomberg's candidacy or anybody else's candidacy, Shia? Well, Michael Bloomberg is really seeking out African-American support. So if he got the African-American lesbian mayor of Chicago, one of the biggest cities in the country, behind him, yeah, he would splash it all over. I presume Politico, we'd be doing a a standalone (laughs) story, too. It's Reset's Friday News Roundup. On our panel today, we've got ABC7 political analyst Laura Washington and Shia Kapos, reporter and author of the Politico Illinois Playbook newsletter. Well, I want to turn to some state news. On Tuesday, former state representative Luis Arroyo pleaded not guilty to federal bribery charges. Several news outlets reported last month that Arroyo appeared ready to plead guilty. Do we know what happened, Shia? No. I mean, maybe he's still trying to figure out how he's dealing with the feds. That's all I could yeah. guess. Well, I think this is this does happen where they they're still in the, in the process of negotiation. They've, they've had conversations 
and, and that's what you mean by dealing with the right, feds. And right. he's got to get the right deal for him to flip and, and, right. and plead guilty. But it sounds like that's the direction because he's going it, in. Because he is supposedly on tape. So mm-hmm. how do you get around you know, that? Get around <laughs> the fact that you're on tape saying that you are willing to do this for $2,500 a month. I right. And he's accused of bribing a state senator in exchange for uh, their support on gambling legislation. Royal also waived his right to be indicted by a federal grand jury, which means he'll likely change his plea to guilty down the line. But Laura, talk about the significance of that move. There's not going to really be a formal prosecutorial process because the expectation is he's going to end up pleading guilty. Well, turning to another case, last week, former state Senator Martin Sandoval pleaded guilty to a bribery scheme involving red light cameras. On Wednesday, the Illinois House Transportation Committee voted to advance a measure that would ban red light uh, traffic cameras in towns across the Chicago area and outside St. Louis. But despite the controversy, the measure is actually facing pushback from several municipalities. Laura, what's the argument there? It's about money. It's all plain and simple, and that's the critics um, that's what the critics say about red light cameras. That it's the, the motivation has always been about revenues and not necessarily about safety, even though there are studies that show that it does improve safety in some situations. So they just don't want to give up those revenues. And we should note that the House in 2015 approved a similar measure, but it was blocked in the Senate by then uh, Senator Martin Sandoval. Uh, well, San- <laughs> and, the, and the person pushing it, uh, Dave McSweeney, really felt vindicated after everything happened with Sandoval because he had been harping on that for years. He was, you know, ignored, and now we'll see if it goes anywhere. And we should mention also that Sandoval and Safe Speed have also been named in a class action racketeering lawsuit. One Chicago public school has been in the news quite a bit over the last couple of weeks. Lincoln Park High School interim principal its vice principal and the boys' varsity basketball coach were all suspended last week. The basketball season was also suspended for the school, and since then, students have walked out in protest. Let's listen. The whole strike in October really messed us up, and then this happening now, it's just like we can't get back on track at school. I'm a junior. This is like my most important year, and I'm dealing with all this chaos. That was Lincoln Park High School junior Estrella Sutton. Laura, how much do we know about what's going on? There's been just like these pieces of news that have been dropping over the over the past couple of weeks. Well, and that's the I think that's the big outcry among the parents and students, particularly that the CPS has not been forthcoming, has not been transparent enough about what's really going on. They've suggested that there has been some sexual misconduct and, and that there's and that there may have been some financial um, misdeeds. But they're not going to into any specifics because they say they have to protect the identity of the, of, the, of, the, of the students in particular. But remember, the student is, is absolutely correct. This is, this is very disruptive. And this particular episode has been going on since early January, even though we're only starting to hear that much about it. And I want to be clear, uh, for what we know so far, the allegations of sexual misconduct are student on student. It's right. not teacher student. When the first headline came out, I think a week ago tonight, you didn't quite understand that. Right. Everybody was like, oh, my God. Mm-hmm. Um, the way I've heard the story from uh, parents within the system is, um, yes, it's been going. We've known about this for a long time, uh, and it happened under the previous administration. Now they have had a new principal who's really fabulous, has done a good work in trying to uh, galvanize everybody. But that principal may have known that this was going on and maybe didn't act on it soon enough. Then you have somebody who was upset about it, went to the administration and complained about it, and the, uh, the administration then immediately just let everybody go. Now, the question is, should they have done that? Should they have gone through proper channels? That's why you have an LSC board. Why didn't they talk to um, that group and let them be part of the decision-making about whether somebody's, you know, should be bumped before they 
just started letting people go. You're talking about the local school council yes, the local school council. Well, how has CPS CEO Janice Jackson responded to the concerns of parents and students so far, Laura? She has said, and I think the, the parents and students have been calling for a meeting with her and also with the mayor. Mm-hmm. She has said that we are investigating, and it's an ongoing investigation. We have to protect the victims, and, and, we, and we, have to, we have legal issues that we have to con- be concerned about here. So it, it's, it's concerning, especially given the, the, the massive sex, sexual abuse, sexual misconduct right. uh, investigation that, that they went on, that, that, that was, they were underway with several, several years ago. They were supposed to have, have new policies in place, new practices in place. A lot of scrutiny was on them, and, and yet there's all this confusion. But I wonder if that's part of what's at play, is that mm-hmm. CPS feels the need to respond quickly and strongly in light of those horrific allegations uh, that, that emerged over the last uh, few years coming out of some Chicago Tribune reporting. And, and in the investigations that followed into CBS, there was gross mishandling of these cases. Shia. I think uh, parents are thinking that there was an overcorrection, that there is a process. They should have gone to the local school council first before uh, immediately pushing people out. So, but the, but the response, I think, is you, we have to protect the students. And if there are people, not necessarily protect them from abuse, but protect them from people who maybe not, are not doing the, the best job they should be doing or right. not acting in the interest of students. Right. You're listening to the Friday News Roundup here on Reset. Our panel today includes Chicago Sun-Times columnist and ABC7 political analyst Laura Washington. Also with us, Shia Kapos, reporter and author of the Politico Illinois Playbook Newsletter. Some other stories we're watching today. Illinois lawmakers are considering whether to change ethics laws after recent scandals. And a former legislative inspector general wants them to look inward. Julie Porter testified yesterday that her investigative efforts were a waste of time. Porter spent more than a year investigating dozens of allegations against lawmakers. She says at least two of her reports seem like they were buried by legislators on the Ethics Commission. A 29-year-old man who was knocked unconscious when a Chicago police officer body slammed him onto a street curb is suing the city and the officer. Bernard Kirsch's lawsuit filed in Cook County Circuit Court yesterday says the officer should have known the maneuver was dangerous because he is trained in martial arts. The officer detained Kirsch at a Southside bus stop on Thanksgiving for drinking alcohol in public. Days later, the prosecutors filed aggravated battery and other charges against Kirsch that accused him of spitting into Officer Gerald Williams' face. The arrest was caught on bystander and police body camera video. And this year's Chicago Auto Show is emphasizing electric cars. Some of the models are from big manufacturers such as Ford. Organizers are expecting about 1,000 cars on display and four indoor test tracks at McCormick Place. The Chicago Auto Show opens to the public tomorrow and runs through February 17th. Well, in other CPS news, Chicago Public Schools Inspector General Nicholas Schuler resigned abruptly. He's been in the position since 2014, but he had a couple of years left in his term. Shia, what's the story here? Complaints were filed. He was abusive. He made people cry. He sounded like a really terrible boss. And then the next day we find out he was let go. My question is, what, why was he, what was he yelling about? Why was he having all these confrontations? Uh, Initially, you wondered if it was a Me Too thing, but then we found out, and he acknowledges he was just a stressed out boss. But I think he's a quasi-public official, and and the public deserves to know what it was that he was uh that precipitated these arguments. I think that would be worth knowing just because a lot of the investigations that he did came under scrutiny. And and who knows, maybe people were pushing back in the office that he shouldn't be pushing so hard in some of these investigations. It would be nice to know 
what the discussions were. And there was an investigation that, is, that was completed, which, which I think led to his dismissal, but we don't know what, the, what what's in that investigation, and it's not clear whether or not it's going to be released. Well, this calls a question, who inspects the inspector? Uh, what's the protocol for inspecting the people or departments tasked with investigating schools or government institutions? What is the protocol here? Well, I don't, know. <laughs> I, I don't. I think there's a lot of confusion in Springfield and in Chicago about That's that. That's what that whole ethics uh, commission is trying to figure out too. You know, how do you? Uh, you mentioned it in your report just now. You know, uh, how do we monitor what all these lawmakers are doing and and keep tabs on them so they act appropriately? But this is the same ethics commission that, according to the inspector general, refused to move ahead on a couple of findings of, the, of her, her own investigations. Well, we spoke How- with Shuler at the beginning of this year about his office's annual report into complaints of misconduct, waste and fraud in CPS. And here's a bit of what he had to say. I mean, some of these classic problems that Chicago's, I think, had are, are typified by the, the kind of the bigger cases in our report this year. Things that touch on insider dealing, you know, preferential treatment, and fairness to the system, you know, and I think hopefully our IG office, other IG offices can help kind of create a culture change, a wider culture change that these things aren't, that these things can't be permissible. How much of an impact did Schuler have during his, his tenure? Well, Barbara Bird Bennett, I mean, it was uh, thanks to his investigation and pursuing that that she was prosecuted. Yes, and, and Forrest Claypool, the same thing. He was removed because of his work. And, of course, the sex, sex abuse and misconduct investigations that we referred to earlier. Well, he, his, he did a lot under his tenure. Well, in a statement, Shuler said, quote, I can't discount the possibility that some within CPS seized upon the complaints against me in a calculated way with hopes of getting an IG 